Uh, I really, I appreciate what's just being offered this morning. We we try and craft a morning together. I mean, sometimes you don't always know until it happens. And so just, I'm thankful for what Sarah was offering for us and the song that Ben and Miranda led us in and what Andrew was just speaking to. I think it is helping us find our way in what it is to be a non-anxious presence in a world that feels turbulent and, and just with a lot of trouble. We are trying to navigate our way as what it means to be the people of God together. Uh, and I'm reminded of uh, American psychiatrist uh, Murray Bowen said, if, if you lower anxiety one notch, it's a better world. And so I, I think we're learning for ourselves what it is to relax into the presence of God. And we're learning that in creative ways together. And we are seeking to do that in unique expressions of our own lives. And when we come together, we are resting on something that's bigger and better than ourselves. And that is the life, to use John's language that we've been coming back to for a few weeks now. And the life is the word, and, and we are given the written word as an expression of the word. And this is all John's language that gets wonderfully com complex and beautiful. But we come together and we are leaning on something that is a strength that is not our own. And that's why we look at the word every week to say, God, what is it that you're going to say to us here and now that will give us light for just another step? this day, this week, even just this hour. So we're going to look again and just kind of work our way through First John that was read for us from Andrew, and there'll be some other scripture that we pull on this morning. So if if you have uh, a physical Bible, I, I used to always joke with my youth group kids that I'd say, if you open your bibliotheque, and they'd be like, that's French. And I'd be like, well, it is, you know, God's library. And <laughs> so anyways, I'm reverting to old days. <laughs> But if you go to verse two, uh, chapter two, verse twenty-eight, I'm just going to start with us there, and we'll kind of work our way through bit by bit. And now, dear children, continue in Him, so that when He appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. If you've been reading through the book of First John, this language of dear children is not new. He keeps repeating this phrase saying, dear children or little children, this just great sign of affection that he wants it the best for his readers. And he just keeps pulling them in to say, oh, you need to know that you are loved and what I'm saying is for your good. So St. Clair, would you even hear that? Dear children, that this is for your good. This is for my good. This is for our good. He says, continue in him, this instruction of our lives being in Christ. The language of in him is actually the dominant way the New Testament describes life with God. You know, we have a lot of terms that are good and helpful and, you know, are biblical in different respects. But the phrase in him is used over and over and over again. It's it's the dominant way of understanding what life with God looks like because it's our life merging into his and his life merging into ours. And yes, we follow Jesus and we, we see his example and we try to emulate and live the same. But if our life is only a matter of a sort of external following, then it's, 
This actually just becomes about behavior modification. It's sort of trying to keep the outer clean while the inner remains, uh, well, not transformed. And this sense of our life being in his means there's actually something on the inner that's happening as well in the outer. And that sense of abiding or keeping or remaining in him, it's, it's this sense of keep on, keeping on in him. And then he says, confident and unashamed uh, in anything. Like if, sorry, if we heard a doorbell earlier and that threw me off a little and, and we had bagpipes. So there's just, there's lots going on here that you are not privy to, but now you kind of know. Um, it says, continue in him that we, when he appears, we may, we may be confident and unashamed. I, when I think about what it is to be confident and unashamed, I actually think that's just a great quality or sort of attribute to have in anything. But imagine before God, before our maker, being confident and unashamed. It's a beautiful thing. Not like a pride or an arrogant sort of confidence or, or sort of the necessity of being without fault. But I think it is this sense of being sure of who we are before God and not shrinking back being found in his presence. It is the way of relaxing into the presence of God without shame or without hiding. It's sort of the sense of being able to kind of fling the doors wide open to God and just say, here I am, and to be okay with that. This is sort of the life that John is describing for us that we get invited into, that we are learning to live our life in the light of his presence. Verse 1 of chapter 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I don't know if you can sort of get a sense of the tone of what John is saying here, but he seems to be pretty emphatic. He's saying, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. And he says, and this is what we are. Like he, he really wants us to understand that God has not offered affection and love towards us just in part. He has lavished it. It is without end. It is not with condition. It is above and beyond. It is this incredibly generous act that God would love us without condition, lavishly. There's an old Scottish translation of these couple of verses that I really appreciated. Uh, and now hearing bagpipes today, it seems appropriate. Uh, it's, Behold the amazing gift of love the Father has bestowed on us. The sinful sons of men to call us sons of God. And this in John's writing, this is chapter three of this book of First John. And if you're to look at the gospel of John, you would notice actually a really interesting parallel in the third chapter of the gospel of John. Because this is, uh, in the gospel, it's this moment where Jesus and Nicodemus are having this back and forth. And Jesus is saying, don't you understand that this thing about life with God is about new 
birth. It's about rebirth. And then John goes on to describe how God so loved the world, that there's this understanding of birth and declaration of love. And then in both the Gospel of John and in this third chapter of the letter of John, there's also this allusion to light and how we are light and in the world, it, we're not fully understood. Being being beings who are being reborn and renewed and remade in the image of God through his love means we kind of find ourselves at an odd place in the world. And he's John's doing it in a few different places. He's kind of saying the same thing that we would understand. This is John in the Gospel of John, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 19. He says, the verdict is this. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. It seems to ring pretty similar to this sense of the the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And as Matt said last week, we live in a world of disordered loves. And we are people who have received God's love and our hearts are being remade and reordered for a love for God and a love for others. It's not towards the selfish Gain. And so it makes sense that our lives would become confusing or perhaps curious to a world that is bent in on itself. To live a kind of love that is selfless and is giving itself away makes sense that it kind of doesn't fit with everything around us. Christianity, I think, actually becomes very problematic when it assimilates itself with the culture around it. And you, you begin to lose a sense of what makes a follower of Christ unique from anyone else. Jacques Ilal says this. He describes it in a really helpful way. He says, Christians were never meant to be normal. We were always being holy troublemakers. We've always been creators of uncertainty, agents of dimension that's incompatible with the status quo. We do not accept the world as it is, but we insist on the world becoming the way God wants it to be. And the kingdom of God is different from the patterns of this world. Verse 2, he goes on and he sort of says again with this deep sense of affection, Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Let me read for you a verse in 2 Corinthians that's describing essentially the exact same thing. The 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There is this movement of maturity in life with God and that we go from image to likeness. We, all of us, Everyone, everyone, without exception, is made, is created in the image of God. We all share that as his kind of his handiwork 
that has been made and kind of put into motion in the world. We all have that in common without exception. But what makes us unique as those who have received the love of God is that we were once made in his image and now we are growing to be like him. We are made to be in his likeness and that one day when he appears, we shall be like him. In this sense of when Christ appears, it's, it's this idea of what is invisible is becoming visible. It's not something that's absent then becomes present. We have this promise that God is present with us here and now, but there is a future hope. There is a future day that things will be made right and we will see things as they are, as they were meant to be. And our life will kind of be brought into that because we will be sharing in the likeness of who Jesus is. You know, in the fullest sense, I think it's, like children that are sort of growing up to be like their parents, that we, we share this unmistakable similarity and quality with the one who is our father. And so it makes sense that there's this movement in our life to look more and more like Jesus. But what does it look like to be like him? Or maybe I could say, how do we learn to be like him? And I had to sit with this question for a bit. Uh, and the answer I didn't really like. But the more I was honest about it, the more I found to be true of my own life and true of the saints that have come before us. So to say, how do we learn to be like Jesus? I think the answer is that we actually learn it through hardship. That that is... That is uh, a path in which we cannot skip or bypass in learning the likeness of Christ to be transformed by him. And I'll, I'll try to unpack that and explain that for us this morning. It's important to understand and be reminded of this word covenant and how that understands what it would mean to embrace hardship in our life. That we don't, we're not sort of becoming these like doormats for, for suffering and that we're just saying yes to hard things unnecessarily and that we kind of bring that upon ourselves. But it is this sense of we are not our own. We are dearly loved and we're brought into this covenant with God where he grabs hold on to us and he does not let go. And so therefore, we learn also not to let go because he's holding on to us. This is what God named his people, is that he said, Israel, he who struggles with God, is that we enter into this kind of wrestling match with God, that in the midst of the difficulty of our life, we learn that God is near and with us. And we learn it and we see it because we are given Jesus, the one who has suffered along side of us. And so this movement of image to likeness and this life of being with God is actually learning to embrace the presence of God in everything and anything of our lives. Nothing's kind of off the table to say, well, God couldn't use that. It's actually the things that we usually don't want to touch that God is most keen on using uh, as a way of teaching us something of ourselves. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. 
speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The testing of our faith is actually the evidence of our faith. And I think it's hard for us to talk about hard things or what that means for our faith because we're just offered uh, a world that is catered to ourselves and our comforts. And so this, this notion of learning a faith and a likeness of Christ through difficult things is sort of a radical departure from the narrative that we get handed most days of our lives. As I look at my own life, I think about how most often some of the most important lessons I've learned with God have come through hard things. And the more I thought about this and the more I tried to make sense of this for us and especially as we navigate this COVID reality that I think it would be safe to say this is a hard time, I was drawn to passage in Hebrews that speaks a lot to this reality and what this means for us. So I'm going to kind of float through a few chapters and just highlight some of what Hebrews said for us, says for us, uh, and I hope it lands in a place um, uh, where we can hear these words this morning. So Hebrews 10, verse 22, it says, Let us draw near to God with sincere hearts and full assurance that brings faith. You can kind of hear the same echoes of what John is saying, is that we get to come to God in a place of safety, that it is safe to be with God. Not that it makes the world or our lives sort of uh, safe, you know, in, in every respect, but being with God, we have confidence and we can be unashamed. We can have sincere hearts and full assurance that it's okay to be with God, that he is trustworthy. And the 23 says, uh, that's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And then he goes on uh, in verse 32 to remind these listeners in the letter of Hebrews, say, remember those early days after you had received the light, when you endured great conflict, full of suffering. He wants them to remember uh, what was revealed of their faith through that hardship. Verse 39 says, but we do not belong to those who shrink back. I'll keep moving forward here. Uh, chapter 11, verse 16. Uh, if you're familiar with Hebrews, the writer has just gone on to highlight sort of the like hall of fame people of faith to say Abraham and Moses and all these people whom God did amazing things the Hebrews 11 is highlighting for us what was unique about their faith. And you see in all of their stories, hardship that they endured and what God taught them in the midst of that. And then it goes on to say that they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And it goes on. What more shall I say? Uh, they went about, and then it kind of mentions like, I could go on for a while talking about everyone in scripture who went through this same path of hardship. So they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And then verse 38 of chapter 11 said, the world was not 
worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. It's describing a, a, a pretty desirable life. <laughs> it's, it's naming the reality of that many people of faith went through. And it's all sort of this set up for chapter 12. And I'm just going to read through a bunch of this for us. This might be familiar for some. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all these people he's just described, said, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, that sense of looking, knowing that there's a better country ahead the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured su such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And I think it is very easy, it's more than easy these days, to grow weary and lose heart especially if we are not able to look beyond ourselves. Because if our life and kind of getting through the day and a sense of having an inspired faith is dependent on us being inspired and kind of rallying our strength to just do better tomorrow, well, that is going to leave us tired and weary and worn out. This passage is reminding us to have our eyes on Jesus, who has walked this road with us who is showing us a better way, who is a hope beyond ourselves. Verse 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. I, <laughs> many days I struggle with sin, but I have not gotten to that point. So that is um, quite humbling for me. And you have, and this is verse 5, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? So hear these next words as a word of encouragement. My son, this is using very male-centric language, so you can uh, adapt it more broadly. But it says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. I don't know if at first take you receive that as encouragement, but God is reminding us that he cares for us as his own, and that he is, knows what's best for us. And like a father would discipline a son for the betterment of the son, God is okay to let us experience hard things, knowing what is good and right and best, because he is trustworthy. Verse 7 says, uh, and maybe I could just read this and we would be done. It says, endure hardship as discipline. There, There's a reality here where it's saying, uh, do not deny or resist your circumstance as though God were absent or nowhere to be found because you are facing hard things. What this is suggesting is that perhaps 
you are facing hard things that God would want to teach you. Not that God is delivering uh, hard things in our life as sort of this manipulative tool to get our attention. That's God does not have to go to those lengths, but he's quite all right to use the force of circumstance to let our hearts be drawn back to him, especially if we have been wandering. He will use whatever means he can so that we, our lives can remain in him. That is his goal. That's the end, sort of as Sarah was alluding to earlier. It says, God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and if you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. If the hardship and discipline that we would go through is actually a sign of us being legitimate children of God. Moreover, verse 9, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and respect, and we respect them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? There's this encouragement and promise that this brings life. Verse 10, they disciplined us for a little while. This is sort of speaking of the imagery of our, of our own parenting that we have received. They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. In verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. Like the, the language is so plain here. It, it's so matter of fact that it's, a lot of this really just comes down to, am I willing to accept this? Am I willing to embrace this? And the only way we can actually embrace this reality in this kind of life is to know that God is actually trustworthy, that he is as good as he says he is, that we are actually his dearly loved children, that he will go to any length to keep our lives in him. And he's quite okay for us to go through hard things that we may learn that. We don't like that. It does not seem pleasant. It is painful. But we are given a companion. We are given Jesus who suffered with us and for us. So there's no piece of this where God's just sort of like dangling something and, and kind of just uh, wants to create havoc in our lives just for the sake of it. Jesus endured a chaos and turmoil far beyond what we could imagine. And we are invited to know the joy that was set before him, that we would discover joy in our life that goes beyond circumstance. Happiness is, is probably you know, sort of a, a niceness that's related to good things going our way. Joy is a reality that we get immersed in whether or not things go our way. This is sort of the life that we are being invited into. To finish verse 11, it says, Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. 
Let me just read verse 11 again, because it just seems to encapsulate so much. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. For those who let themselves be taught by it. And it, why I felt like this Hebrews passage was important for us this morning is that many of us have been experiencing hardship and hardship doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And I think many of us have grown weary and have um, maybe at times been frustrated or angry, disappointed or discouraged because of our hard circumstances. And we just wish if this hard thing would just go away, then everything would be better. But there is an invitation that we hear really clearly in these words of Hebrews, that what if God wants to meet us in the midst of hardship? We don't need to go looking for hardship. It's, it's kind of found its way to us. And I know some of us are already just feel like we're only trying to keep our heads above water and to think about sort of embracing hardship, even just that thought feels overwhelming. I want you to hear the tenderness of John's words. It says, little children, keep in him. Just keep going. And I've been reminding myself these days of the words of the poet Rilke. He says, let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by seriousness. Give me your hand. What I would implore us in today, St. Clair, is to just keep going. In the midst of that Hebrews passage that I was uh, kind of cherry picking from, in it, it says to not give up on meeting together as some in the habit of doing, but to keep on encouraging each and each other because we have something to give and we have something to receive as we stick with this together. Let me, let, let me offer one uh, example here. Part of my daily rhythms, what would be part of my own rule of life right now is uh, trying to keep to a midday prayer. So that's, uh, you know, if all things are going well, it'd be noon every day, but uh, rarely is it noon. It usually gets pushed around. So somewhere in the midday, uh, I try to take 10 minutes to stop and to pray. And usually once I'm in the hustle and bustle of the day, I need some help to kind of get me out of what's going on in the day. And the most helpful tool I found lately is, and some of you use this as well, is the app Lectio 365. It's just, it has wonderfully well-crafted sort of daily readings of scripture that you can either read on your phone or you can listen to. There's an audible version of it. So usually I put on the audible version and I will just, it's like 10 minutes long, and I will just listen and I will stop and I will seek to be still and see what God might have to say. And this is what came up yesterday, and it felt appropriate to this sense of how God would use hardship in our life. I'll just read kind of what uh, the, the daily devotional offered yesterday. 
So Pedro Arupe was a missionary to Japan when the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. In 1965, he was elected to the head of the Jesuit order, and in later life, he endured a series of debilitating strokes. Through so many trials, he came to trust the Lord in a profound way as his stronghold in times of trouble. Goes on to say, finding himself severely disabled, he confided to his journal, more than ever, I find myself in the hands of God. This is what I have wanted all my life from my youth. But now there is a difference. The initiative is entirely with God. It is indeed a profound spiritual experience to know and feel myself to be totally in God's hands. St. Clair, I think therein lies the invitation to be okay with hardship. Because sometimes hardship teaches us that we are not enough in and of ourselves, and it forces us, it thrusts us into this place that we wouldn't have gone on our own initiative, but at God's initiative, he draws us in that we would know that we are dearly loved children, that he has lavished his love on us without condition. That's the invitation that we are invited to learn and to be trained by through the difficult things of our life. There's probably no better example than the bread and the juice communion and how it reminds us week in and week out that the thing that we are a part of is our faith is joined together with one another, with the one who has suffered with us. That is a beautiful, inescapable reality that we have said yes to every time we take the bread and the juice together. Amy is going to lead us together. Can I read for us this one last piece of scripture as a blessing, as a benediction as we go? It's not hard to find scripture that speaks to these things. If you're to pull out the narratives uh, and subtract the things and the stories of scripture that are related to hardness uh, and difficulty, you're not going to be left with much of the Bible. But let me read for you Romans 5. May you receive this as an encouragement. I'm going to use part of the message's translation for this. St. Clair says, by entering through faith into what God has always wanted to do for us, set us right with him, Make us fit for him. We have it all together with God because of Jesus. And that's not all. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that he has already thrown open his doors to us. We find ourselves standing where we always hoped we might stand out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, standing tall and shouting praise. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, 
because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. St. Clair, would you go in peace?